Now, this actually brings us to our study that we had for today, and we'll move into this as far as we can. We've come here in the fourth chapter to a very important incident in the life of the Lord Jesus. He departs into Galilee. He goes through Samaria and the incident of the woman at the well. And so now let's look at this incident of the woman at the well here. Now, I want to begin reading at verse 1. "...when therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not but his disciples." And this apparently was immediately after this. This was in the month of December, apparently, somewhere around the 27th. It was the time that John the Baptist was imprisoned. And when that took place, why, the Lord Jesus, we're told, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee. That is, he retired from Judea. And why? Well, he did not want to precipitate a crisis before the time. You see, the Lord Jesus is moving on a schedule, and that schedule is a heavenly schedule and a schedule set by the Father. And he's made it very clear. He's come to do the Father's will. Listen to him in the 10th chapter, John's Gospel, verse 18. "'No man taketh it from me, that is his life, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it again, this commandment have I received of my Father. They can't touch him, you see, until his time has come. And we find out that time did come over in the 13th chapter, John's Gospel. We're told now before the Feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world. You see, he's moving on a schedule, friends. He's come to do the Father's will. And then we're told he departed again into Galilee. He went back up where his headquarters was, which we've indicated before we believe was in the city of Capernaum. And now we read, he must needs go through Samaria. And the word must, of course, attracts our attention again. Well, why must he go through Samaria? Well, to reach this woman, and listen to him in verse 34, Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me, and to finish his work. He must needs go through. Why? Because it's the Father's will, friends, for him to go through Samaria. And his destination, apparently, was Cana of Galilee, where he made the water wine, and there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. He's headed in that direction, but he goes through Samaria. There were three routes he could have taken. He could have gone along the coast. There was a route there. It's there today, by the way. And then he could have gone through Perea, which is on the other side, Jordan. Or he could go through Samaria. And Josephus tells us the most direct route and shortest route was through Samaria. He went through Samaria because of this woman. Now we are told here, "...then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground." 
that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now, Joseph's tomb is nearby. This at the fork of the old Roman road south of Sychar. Here was where he meets now the woman at the well. And Mount Gerizim is to the northwest. I've been at that spot and have taken pictures there. And the synagogue of the Samaritans was on the slope of Mount Gerizim. And we find that this is the place that our Lord now comes to. And we're told here that in verse 6, Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well and was about the sixth hour. The sixth hour, according to Roman time, was apparently six o'clock in the evening. Jewish time, twelve noon. And apparently we're following Jewish time here. He was wearied with his journey. How perfectly human he was. You see, John presents him as the Son of God, as God manifest in the flesh. The Word was made flesh. And friends, there's something here, again, that though the language is simple, it's overwhelming. Think of it, the God of eternity. He came down to this earth. The Word was made flesh, pitched his tent here among us, and he went through Samaria, and he sat down at a well in order that he might reach this woman of Samaria. Now, the Samaritans were a poor group of people in that day. And we read, There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. Now, this woman was obviously a dissolute woman. I think she was probably as common as pig tracks. She's rude and immoral. We'd call her today a broad, a hussy, if you please. And what a contrast to the man we saw in the last chapter, Nicodemus. And notice, Nicodemus, who was religious to his fingertips, our Lord was harsh and blunt with Nicodemus, but notice how gentle he is with this woman. And he asks a favor. He appeals to her sympathy. He was thirsty. He asked for a drink. And twice he's refused by this woman. And we have here, she resented his approach, and she resisted any spiritual implication that he made here. And what condescension on his part. He was the water of life, and he asked for water. And apparently it was noontime. His disciples had gone into the city to buy meat. That's verse 8. Then verse 9, "...then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans." And tell you, she's rude here and insolent, impudent, impertinent, and she tosses her pertinent, saucy head here, and she makes this racial distinction." It is said that the Samaritans would sell to the Jews, but they wouldn't drink to the same vessel at all. And you see what our Lord is doing here. He's coming actually to the very lowest place that he could come to. Now, notice how our Lord dealt with her. He was very skillful, sympathetic. 
but he deals with her forcefully, faithfully, and factually. And he doesn't give her a talk on integration or civil rights. He wasn't a candidate for some office. He just appealed to her womanly curiosity. He created an interest, a thirst. And notice what he said. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldst have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. You see, he's really appealing to her curiosity. And notice that her attitude changes immediately. The woman saith unto him, Sir, she left that out before. You see, she was impudent, rude. But now, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou this living water? You see, the whole point here is that this woman here is thinking in terms of the physical. And her thinking could get no higher than the water level down in that well, by the way. That's as far as it could go. And then she asked the question, Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle? And her thinking, you see, is to the level of that well. And she identified herself with Jacob, you see. And she does that, of course, purposely. Now, notice how our Lord continues to speak to her. Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a spring of water, or a fountain of water, springing up into everlasting life. And Jesus made it clear that he's not talking about water in Jacob's well. He's contrasting it, you see. Two-thirds of the earth's service today is water, H2O, and the crowds today all are going to the water holes, the water places today, and they are constantly looking at the physical water, and they're not looking for the spiritual. But now he has created a desire in the woman's heart for the spiritual water. The woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not. And then her thinking goes right back down in that well. Neither come hither to draw. Jesus saith unto her, Go call thy husband and come hither. And this is a master stroke. The water was available for all, but there has to be a condition. And that is, there must be a thirst, a need. And she must, therefore, recognize that she is a sinner. And when our Lord says, Go call your husband, she becomes flippant again. Listen to her. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband. She sure was accurate about that. Why? Well, the woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Why? Well, because thou hast had five husbands. He whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In that sayest thou truly. She was living in adultery. She is a sinner. And one of the reasons she was not so popular with the women of the town was because she was too popular with the men of the town. And the woman is actually shocked into reverence. And so she wants now to open up a religious argument. And I find we've got a great many people today in our churches and out of our churches, they don't want to talk about sin. 
but they sure do like to argue religion. Now, there are many people today who want to argue religion, but they don't want to live it. I'm convinced that most of the superficiality that's in our churches today is there because there's a cover-up of sin. I think that our churches are honeycombed with hypocrisy. There's a compromise with evil. Not face up to sin. You know, it's easy to preach about the sin of the Moabites, which they committed about 4,000 years ago. But what about our sins today? It was the brother of Henry Ward Beecher who said, I like a sermon where one man is the preacher and one man is the congregation. And when the preacher says, Thou art the man, there's no mistaking who you're talking about. You see, today there are many ministers that are afraid to preach on the sins of Christians. I had this confirmed to me several years ago. I was speaking in a summer conference, and I took as a series the first eight chapters of Romans, which is not taken very often. And I felt a resentment at first because Paul deals with sin. I could feel it. By the middle of the week, the Holy Spirit began to break up hard hearts. And I think probably the most pompous and pious saint that was there, he came to me to want to confess his sins. I told him not to confess them to me, but to go to the great high priest, the Lord Jesus, and he'd hear them and confess them there, and he'd be forgiven. And what a change took place in this man. And at that same conference, two preachers came to me personally and privately, and they said, Do you preach like this in your church? Well, I did preach like that, but I found out there was a little cell of super-duper saints. They like to criticize the preacher to take attention off of themselves. They would never attend the midweek service, but they really wanted to be active. In fact, they wanted to run the church but did not want to deal with sin in their lives. Now, our Lord did not avoid or sidestep the issue. And I believe that if you really have got a religious argument, that is, you have some doubts, you'll beat your music out if you're honest, always. Now, our Lord dealt with her at this. Listen to him. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh, when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Now, you see, the thing that was important to her was, shall we worship God in this mountain where we Samaritans worship him, or do we worship him in Jerusalem? Now, our Lord said that the day is coming when you won't worship him in either place. Why? He says, ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. Our Lord was a Jew. In fact, that's what the woman at the well called him. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, it's irrelevant, therefore, where you worship God. It's not where, but how do you worship him? And our Lord answered her here very adequately. He said that God's a spirit. You don't have to run to this place or that place. 
but the true worshipers worship him in spirit and in truth. And the woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he is come, he'll tell us all things. Now, you see, even the Samaritans were looking for the Messiah to come. That is something that's very interesting. Today, the second coming of Christ is believed and loved by those that are his. And then those that are not his today, and yet church members, it's a nagging feeling that he might come. And they say they don't believe it, but it still disturbs them no end. An atheist in London several years ago made that statement. He says, you know, the thing that disturbs me is the Bible might be true, and Jesus might come again. And he said, I'd be in trouble. He sure would be in trouble. Now, will you notice this woman is profoundly interested, and there's wistful longing in her heart here. Notice this in verse 25. The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah's coming, which is called Christ. When he's come, he'll tell us all things. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. Oh, how majestic and sublime this statement is. And this woman is brought face to face now with the Savior of the world and the Messiah. And friends, today... My question to you, whoever you are, wherever you are, and however you are, is, have you come face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ, as this woman did? And I tell you, she found herself in his presence. Now, I that speak unto thee am he. And upon this came his disciples, and marveled that he talked with the woman. Yet no man saith, What seekest thou? Or why talkest thou with her? Now, the woman turned in faith to the Lord Jesus. Notice what happens now. The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city, and saith to the man. You notice she didn't say it to the women. I don't speak in terms with them, but saith to the man, Come, see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? And some of those men were involved with her. And they were very much interested in knowing whether he could tell all things that she had done. So we have here this incident, and here's what happened. Then they went out of the city and came unto him, the man of the city now, because of her witness. And that's very important for us to see. That's the test of her faith, the fact that she witnessed to others. In the meanwhile, his disciples prayed him, saying, Master, eat. But he said unto them, I have meat to eat that ye know not of. Therefore said the disciples one to another, Hath any man brought him out to eat? Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me to finish his work. Now, that's the reason he went through Samaria, was to do the Father's will, to reach this woman. Now, notice, say not ye, there are yet four months. You see, this was December. Harvest was in April. He says, say not four months, and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes, 
Look on the fields, for they are white, all ready to harvest. And he that reapeth receiveth wages, and gathereth fruit unto life eternal, that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice. And herein is that saying true, one soweth, another reapeth. Now, I believe that in this age in which we are living today, our business is to sow. I am tempting through the radio to sow the Word of God. I think that churches and different organizations will reap. I hope that will be true, and many testify to that. One pastor told me that because of the radio he had received into his church, over a hundred members, because we were reaching a great many people who were church members in liberal churches, and there's so much upsetting today in the liberal church that many people have been leaving them, and they wanted to know where to go. And this man said that they began to listen to the broadcast, and they found out what they wanted was the Word of God, and these men were able to supply it. And now he says, I sent you to reap that whereon ye bestowed no labor. Other men labored, ye entered into their labors. Now we find here that a great company was reached in Samaria through this woman with a shady pass, by the way. What a statement this is. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman, which testified, he told me all that ever I did. So when the Samaritans were come unto him, they besought him that he would tarry with them, and he abode there two days. And many more believed because of his own word, and said unto the woman, Now we believe, not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves, and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Oh, what a wonderful thing. They now come to the living water, and they drink. And the one condition was to thirst, and you'll never know that you thirst until you know you're a sinner, friends. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. And the Lord Jesus, you remember, gave that invitation in the temple. If any man thirsts, any man, the condition, though, is thirst. If any man thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. And many of the Samaritans came to him, and they drank. Now we are told, and after two days he departed thence, and he went into Galilee. And we have here, I think in these statements, the most remarkable insights into one of the great truths of the Scripture. Notice this, and let me go over it again, because this is so important here. When the Samaritans were coming to him, they besought him that he would tarry with them, and he bowed there two days. Many more believed because of his own word. And they said to the woman, Now we believe not because of thy saying, for we've heard him ourselves, and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Many people are led to know Christ through the influence of another. In fact, it's the effect of life upon life, impact of one personality upon another. But our faith must stand on surer grounds than the other person. Some young people have remarkable parents or, 
are of a remarkable parent. And because of the influence of the parent, they come to Christ. And they live in the light of that one. No personal contact, actually, with Christ. And later on, you see them stumble and fall when the influence of the parent is gone. I've seen that as a pastor happen again and again. And it's wonderful to exercise an influence on another for Christ. And don't let it stand there. See that the individual gets through to Christ. And that, my friend, is for parents today. It's very important. Now, we have an incident that's like this here that follows through on this ground. And let me read this. Now, after two days, he departed thence and went into Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet hath no honor in his own country. Then when he was come into Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did at Jerusalem at the feast, for they also went unto the feast. So Jesus came again unto Cana of Galilee, where he made the water wine, and there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. Now notice the geography that we have here. He leaves Samaria, goes into Galilee, and many Galileans believe on him. And then he goes specifically to Cana of Galilee because there's the nobleman there. But the nobleman has a son way down at Capernaum. Now, when he heard that Jesus was come out of Judea into Galilee, he went unto him and besought him that he would come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Now, you see, this is a father who exercised faith in behalf of a son. And this illustrates the thing that we're saying. Make sure your own child has a personal contact with Jesus Christ. Now, the essential thing, father should have brought the boy to Christ. Now, you have a right, I think, to claim your loved ones for Christ. You can exercise your own influence from the lives of others. Now, I believe that you've got to be a witness to your loved one. You've got to reveal in your own life that you have a living faith in Christ and that it works. I had a man that came in to me. He had been a member of the church I served here in Los Angeles. And this man's life wasn't a very pretty life. In fact, he was an officer of the church, and his life wasn't very good. He wanted me to pray for the salvation of his son. The boy had walked out of the house, and I didn't blame the boy for it at all. In fact, he wanted me to talk to the boy also. I very candidly told him I wouldn't talk with the boy. I said, you've served him roast preacher so long, the boy hadn't any use for me. You've done nothing but criticize. Now I said, you've lost your influence with the boy. I said, I'll pray that somebody else will exert an influence on that boy and bring him to the Lord. Be sure that you do that in your own heart and in your own life. Now, will you notice here what takes place? Then said Jesus unto him, Except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. The nobleman saith unto him, Sir, come down ere my child die. This man says, I'm not looking for signs and wonders. I want my boy. That was the important thing to him. Jesus saith unto him, Go thy way, thy son liveth. And the man believed the word 
that Jesus had spoken unto him, and he went his way. Now, this man's faith, of course, is that which is responsible. But that boy, it's too bad that he didn't bring the boy into the presence of Christ. That's the thing that is important, all important. Now, I think this illustrates this, that even the influence of that woman, and she was a bad woman, it brought these men, but they had to come face to face with the Lord Jesus. And someone can influence you, and you can influence someone else, too, by the way. I'm of the opinion that every one of you can reach somebody that your preacher can't reach. In fact, nobody else can reach that individual but you. You have that influence over that individual. Be sure you exercise it. And as he was now going down, his servants met him, told him, saying, Thy son liveth. That's verse 51. Then inquired he of them the hour when he began to mend. They said unto him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him, approximately seven in the evening, Roman time. I guess that's what it was. It's difficult to make sure just what John, the time he's using always. So the Father knew that it was at the same hour in the which Jesus said unto him, Thy son liveth, and himself believed, and his whole house. In other words, he claimed his whole house now, his household for Christ. And they have to exert faith personally. But the important thing is, there's the influence of this man. Now, we are told this is again the second miracle that Jesus did when he was come out of Judea into Galilee. And the word for miracle here is sign. And this actually is a sign. Jesus healing the nobleman's son here, that is his second work. And also, it was a sign. And that's the word John uses. Now, that brings us to the fifth chapter here. And here, Jesus heals the man at the pool of Bethesda, at the Sheep Gate, and that is his third work. And this, again, is a remarkable chapter, by the way. It's one of those great chapters, and it has in it so much that is rich and meaningful for you and me today. In chapter 5, he goes down to Jerusalem, and there's always been a question about what feast it was. After this, after what? After what took place here in Galilee and his incident with the woman at the well, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Do you notice how we are following geography here, friends? There was that Jerusalem by the sheep, not market here. The word here means gate. At the sheep gate there was a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda. And that means house of olives, having five porches. Now, the healing here of the impotent man at the pool of Bethesda was one of the most important miracles in the ministry of Jesus. Not because of the nature of the case, although that was a stupendous thing Christ did, but for other considerations. And actually, this miracle, in one sense, is the turning point in the ministry of Christ. You see, this miracle set the bloodhounds of hate 
on his track, and they never let up until they did him to death on the cross. Notice verse 16 in this chapter, and I'll begin there today rather than verse 1. And therefore did the Jews, that means the religious rulers, persecute Jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. You see, it was the breaking of the Sabbath. He clashed with them over the Sabbath day. And they never forgave him for what he did on the Sabbath. And what he said, man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man. And the miracle our Lord did here really put murder in their hearts. Verse 18, Therefore, again, the religious rulers sought the more to kill him, because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. And friends, you can't have it any clearer than that. When you say that the Bible does not teach the deity of Christ, as I've heard several liberals say, and one in our Southern California area, I don't know what these men are talking about. I feel like they're either woefully ignorant or they're absolutely dishonest. Because you may disagree with the Lord Jesus, and you may disagree with the Bible, but I can't conceive of any other construction being put on these words, making himself equal with God. Now, if that isn't claiming deity, I do not know how you would be able to claim deity. Now, notice something else as we get into this chapter. And I go back now to verse 1 again. After this, there was a feast to the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. The question is, what feast? Well, probably the Passover. There are three great feasts of the Jews. Three times a year shall all thy males appear before the Lord thy God in the place which he shall choose. That's Deuteronomy 16, 16. And then those three feasts are designated, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. And you find in John 2, the Passover. And you find in John 7, the Tabernacles. And it's assumed by many that this is Pentecost. Well, I don't know, I must confess. I rather think it could be the Passover feast again. But regardless of that, and to me that's not the important thing, we find here, now there is at Jerusalem by the sheep gate, not market, gate, a pool which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, house of olives, or as it is variously translated, house of mercy. And certainly that's what it was to a great many, having five porches, now, in these lay a great multitude, and actually the word great is not in the better manuscripts. It don't need it anyway. In these lay a multitude. A multitude is a great number. In these lay a multitude of impotent folk. And that means people without strength. Many years ago, in fact, when I was pastor in Pasadena, I went up one year to speak at the preventorium where little fellows and girls that were there that, you know, had weak lungs. Some of them had TB. And they put on an Easter program. And there was a little fellow there that quoted this entire fifth chapter of John. 
all 47 verses. He only made one error, and I always felt his error wasn't much of an error. And it's verse 3 here. He quoted it like this, "...in these lay a great multitude of important folk." And quite a few smiled and noticed that. But I got to thinking about it, and I'm sure they were important, because one of them caused the Lord Jesus to come through there, and any of the others could have turned to him. They were important to him. In those lay a great multitude, or multitude of impotent folk, that is, people without strength. They were of the blind and the halt and the withered, and they were waiting for the moving of the water. Now, verse 4, again, it's not in the better manuscripts, but I don't want to get into an argument. Quite a few will write in and tell me I do not believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. And I want to assure you that I do believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. Why in the world do you think I teach the entire Bible? But I do think there's such a thing as fundamental conservative scholarship. And they feel that because it's not in the better manuscripts, verse 4, it was put in by a scribe as a word of explanation. Now, it's factual, but whether it belongs in Scripture is another point. To me, that's not the essential thing. There's something here far more important than this, but this is a good word of explanation. Why were they here? For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first, after the troubling of the water, stepped in was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. Now, that's the explanation of why they were there. And the belief was that an angel stirred the water at a certain season. And again, I don't want to enter into that. I personally feel that a great many cures took place there because they were psychological. And what we have here is the fact that many were sick in their mind. And there are a great many more today that are sick in their minds, ignorant and superstitious. And there are quite a few that go to faith healers today, and somebody tells me they get healed. Well, whether they were ever really sick is always a question, and whether they stay permanently healed is another question. And my point is that the Lord Jesus Christ heals today just like he did here and that it's not healed by some moving of the water at all. Now our attention is directed to a certain man here. And a certain man was there which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. Now, whether he'd been there all that time, I don't know. But he'd had this infirmity thirty-eight years, and apparently he couldn't move. That is, barely could move. I would say he's the worst case that was there. Probably, if he hadn't been there the 38 years, he'd been there many years. My, how frustrating it was for this poor fellow. Just think of all those years, 38 years, and he must have been much older than that. And this man, apparently the worst case there, and we're told the condition is the result of his own sin. For in verse 14, the Lord Jesus said, Behold, thou art made whole, sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. Now, this is the case that is there. And you can well imagine this poor fellow lying there, keeping his eyes on the water, waiting for the moving, hoping that somehow or another 
he might be able to be the first one that would get down in the water. And there was disappointment after disappointment because he was in such bad state that others got in the water, but he didn't. And I'm sure that he saw many cures there. That is, people sick of mind, I'm sure that they were healed because they were sick in their mind and healed in their mind too, by the way. That man was watching that pool. Notice how our Lord approaches him. When Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, that is, a long time not only in his condition but at that pool, he saith unto him, Wilt thou, or do you earnestly desire to be made whole? Now, will you take a look at this? That's a peculiar question to ask a sick man. It seems rather absurd, does it not? That wasn't the man's problem. He wanted to be made. And why did the Lord ask him that? Well, I think for two reasons. First, to beget hope in the man. His case was hopeless. And I think the light of hope had pretty much gone out of his life, and he was in despair there. And then the second reason, and it's the more important one, to get the man's eyes off the pool, to get him to look to Jesus to startle him. I think this man never noticed anybody else that came up there. He never watched anything else. He just kept his eyes on that pool. And so our Lord startles him and says to him, Would you be made whole? Do you earnestly desire? And I think the man normally and naturally would look up at, Well, who in the world would ask a question like that? Why, he said, Of course I want to be made whole, but that's not my problem I need somebody to put me in the water. And may I say that this man was watching that pool, waiting for something to happen. Do you know that's the condition of so many people today? And I'm bold enough to say that it's the condition of all of us in these days. Just think of the people, even in our churches, waiting for some great sweeping emotion to engulf them. And there are those that are postponing making a decision for Christ. They're not willing to turn to him. Why? Well, they're looking for an emotion. They're looking for something to happen. And what they're looking for will never come to a great many people today. And then there are many people that they've got their eyes on business. They're waiting for something to happen, get rich quick. And I was pastor in Texas of a place where they drill for oil. And I've had a lot of my folk that just sat around watching a dry well. There wasn't any moving of water or anything. It was dry. They wanted it to become an oil well. And they had their eye, I must confess, on the physical, entranced by the material, and they lose sight of Jesus Christ. Now, there are some people today that are looking to some individual, and they're waiting for something to happen in their lives. They've heard the experience of someone else, and they're doomed to bitter disappointment. Why? Well, I've talked to many of these people. They're coming under all of these categories, waiting today, got their eyes fixed on something, and they've got their eyes fixed on the wrong thing or the wrong individual or the wrong happening today. I'd ask you the question, are you waiting for something to happen these days? What is it? I could write your biography and tell me what it is. 
the Thessalonians, they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. They got their eyes off of things in Thessalonica, and they turned to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this poor, helpless man, he's there, and I think he looked up rather amazed anyone had asked him that question. The impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me. Actually, the word is bale, which we get our word ball from this same word. And I have no man to throw me into the pool. But while I'm coming, another steppeth down before him. What a sad story that tells. This poor, helpless, hopeless, homeless, lonely fella. And you know what he's really saying? He's saying, would I be made whole? Of course I would. But I haven't anybody to put me in the pool. Would you put me in the pool? And the Lord Jesus had no notion of getting the man into that pool. He was going to get him out of it and get him away from it. The minute that he got his eye on the Lord Jesus, why, something did happen. And our Lord now says to him, Rise, get up, take up thy bed, and walk. In other words, as the old Scotch divine said, he told him to take up his bed and walk, give your place there at the pool to somebody else because you will not have a relapse. Don't make an arrangement for a relapse. Now, what happens here? Well, the enemies accuse him of carrying his bed on the Sabbath day. Well, that was the proof he was healed. And notice now what is going to happen. And immediately the man was made whole, took up his bed, and walked. And on the same day was the Sabbath. Now again, the religious rulers therefore said unto him, That was cured. It is the Sabbath day. It's not lawful for thee to carry thy bed. And you can't imagine anything as ridiculous as this. But that's what they did. He answered them, He that made me whole, the same said unto me, Take up thy bed and walk. Then asked they him, What man is that which said unto thee, Take up thy bed and walk? Who was it that told you this? And he that was healed knew not who it was, for Jesus had conveyed himself away, a multitude being in that place. And I think our Lord used actually a miraculous way of getting away from the crowd there that day. But the man actually didn't know who it was that had healed him. Afterward, Jesus findeth him in the temple and said unto him, Behold, thou art made whole, sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. Now the man departed, and he told the religious rulers that it was Jesus which had made him whole. And therefore did the religious rulers begin to persecute Jesus. And they sought to slay him, because he'd done this on the Sabbath day. And what actually happens is just simply this. The Lord healed him physically at the pool of Bethesda, but he healed his soul in the temple. Sin had caused his trouble. Not only got a well body, but he got a well soul. He came to know Jesus, you see. Now he's able to tell them. This impotent man looking in the pool, waiting and waiting, one day Jesus came by, the Lamb of God, and he saw him. Then the man saw Jesus, and the impotent man met the omnipotent man. 
And the amazing thing to me is that there were multitudes left in those porches, and they were not healed. Multitudes today are not saved. Isn't Jesus willing? Well, they haven't looked to Jesus. They're waiting. They're just waiting, friends, for something to happen. And apparently, nothing's going to happen. Now we have here an incident that took place. This is the thing that put these bloodhounds of hate on the trail of Jesus. Now notice, "...but Jesus answered them, My Father worketh hitherto, and I work." In other words, when the man got down in the ditch of sin, then the Lord Jesus and the Father, they no longer rested on the Sabbath day. God rested after the creation of the physical universe. But after the creation of man, he didn't rest because the man, like an ox, got down in a ditch. And again, they tried more and more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath according to their estimation, but he made himself equal with God. Now we have here our Lord making three tremendous claims concerning himself. Now, it's on the basis of these claims that, frankly, you can give John 5, 24. This is a verse that's used so often, I've used it, in presenting the gospel. But we ought to put it together here. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word believeth on him that sent me, hath everlasting life, and shall not come into judgment or condemnation, but is passed out of death into the life. Now, that is the language that is used here. But I want you to notice here, he makes three statements. It's on the basis of that that he could say, He that heareth my word and believeth on him. What is that word? Verse 19 is the first one. Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, The Son can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the Father do, for whatsoever things he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. There's a perfect correspondence and harmony between the Father and the Son. Therefore, the charge that they made against him was absurd. The Son does not contradict the Father, nor does the Father contradict the Son. Therefore, he does what God does. Therefore, he can forgive sin. Now notice verse 20, "...for the Father loveth the Son, showeth him all things that himself doeth, and he'll show him greater works than these that ye may marvel." This is personal and intimate relationship between the Father and the Son. Now the second great statement is, "...for as the Father raised up the dead and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will." Are gives life, imparts life to whom he will. Now, if God raises the dead, the Son will raise the dead. And on the basis of that, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life. And now the third statement is verse 22. For not even the Father judgeth man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son hath committed, or hath given, is the proper word here. He hath committed, he hath given all judgment unto the Son. You can have everlasting life if you hear his word 
and believe on him. Why? Because he does what God does, because he raises the dead, and because he's going to judge all men someday, whether saved or lost, they're going to have to appear before him. Not for a general judgment day, but the believer appears before him to see whether he receives a reward. That's at the bema of Christ. And then the lost come before the great white throne. It's on the basis of that that he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Then in verse 23, that all men should honor the Son as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son honoreth not the Father which hath sent him. Believe me, he puts himself on the par with God, and it's to hear Jesus Christ and to trust him, my friend, is what saves you. They wanted to know on what basis that he did this, you see. And he had put down three great principles here that's true of him, and it's on the basis of those three that he gave this wonderful statement that is used in personal work today, and rightly so. But we do need to back it up with what he said. The statement that's used is verse 24, "...Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word..." Believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life, and shall not, or does not, come into condemnation or judgment, but is passed out of death into the life. Now, who said that? That's the important thing. It was like years ago in a cotton patch in the Southland that a man stood up, read to those that were so weary picking cotton. They were lying on their sacks. And he gave the verse, "'Come unto me, all ye that labor, and are heavy laden, I'll rest you.'" And one man raised himself from off his cotton sack and said, "'Them's good words, but who said them?' Well, these are good words. "'He that heareth my word, believeth on him that sent me, hath everlasting life.'" and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into the life. Who said them? Well, here's the one who said them. Here are the three statements he made on which you have the foundation for this verse. The first one is in verse 19. Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he seeth the Father do, for whatsoever things he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. In other words, the Lord Jesus said, I'm God, I do what God does. That's important. That makes his invitation a glorious invitation and makes it good words. Then the second statement is, verse 21, "...for as the Father raiseth up the dead and quickeneth them." That is, give them life. Even so the Son quickeneth or gives life to whomsoever he will. In other words, the Lord Jesus raises the dead. Now, we have a great deal being said about the gift of healing today. But with that gift went the ability to raise the dead. Paul raised the dead, so did Simon Peter. Our Lord gave them that gift. It was an apostolic gift of healing 
and raising the dead. Well, that's gone by. Now, the Lord Jesus raised the dead. He'd raised the dead because he's God. These other men did it in the name of the Lord Jesus. That's the reason today that he can give everlasting life to you. And the third statement is verse 22. He says, "...for not even the Father judgeth any man, but he hath committed all judgment unto the Son." Now, the Lord Jesus didn't come to judge the first time, but he will come the next time, and all judgment is committed to him. Now, this is very wonderful, you see. He's God. He raises the dead, and he's going to judge. And he's the one that says, if you'll hear his word and believe on him, you won't come into judgment. The judge tells us that. That makes these words wonderful words. Now, as we move on into verse 25, "...verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is." That's a great statement. "...when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live." What does he mean, and now is? Well, we're in that period of the hour that's coming, but in verse 28 he makes it clear the hour had not arrived. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming. And what he says here, the hour is coming. The whole thought is that we're living in that period or that age or dispensation that's moving to the time when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. Now, also, that has application. The hour is coming when the dead that are in the grave are going to hear his voice, and now is. Well, what about the dead? Well, the Lord Jesus, you remember, said to the two sisters at the time of the death of Lazarus, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth on me, though he were dead, and I'm not quoting that accurately, as I should, but the point that I'm trying to lift out is that they're dead now, if you please. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth on me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Though he were dead. Well, what do you mean, though he's dead? That mean down in the grave and he hears? Oh, no, no. Spiritually dead. Death means separation from God. But the hour is coming when he says those that are in the grave shall hear his voice also. But today, the dead spiritually. Paul said to the Ephesians, you were dead in trespasses and sins. That is our condition spiritually, you see. He that heareth my word believeth on him that sent me, and he shall not come into condemnation, but he's passed out of death, out of spiritual death, into the life that he gives. Now, that is the thought that is here. We find that not only now the spiritually dead will hear him, but what he's saying is in the future. Why? Verse 26, "...for as the Father hath life in himself, so he gave to the Son to have life in himself." The Lord Jesus is a life-giver, you see. Not only does he have life, but he gives life. Verse 27, "...and he hath given him authority to execute judgment, because he's the Son of God." 
Now, he came the first time as a Savior, not the judge, but he's coming next time as the judge. Listen to him. This verse 28. Now, marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice. Now, that hour hasn't come yet. It's the spiritually dead today that can hear his voice. Verse 29. And shall come forth, and they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation, are better still of judgment. Now, there are two resurrections. You have the book of Revelation even labels them like that. This is the first resurrection. They'll have part in the first resurrection. The first resurrection is the resurrection of all the saved. And there's first of all, and that's the next thing on the agenda of God, is what we call the rapture of the church. And that's a good Bible word. Paul used it in First Thessalonians when he said we'd be caught up. That means be raptured. The rapture takes place sometime in the future. It's not dated, no signs given. It could happen at any moment. He's going to call his own out of the world, both living and dead. And that is a part of the first resurrection. Then you have, during the tribulation period, a great many that will become martyrs. And they'll be raised at the end of the great tribulation period together with the Old Testament saints. And that's part of the first resurrection. And they're raised to live forever here upon this earth. And that's the first resurrection. That is the resurrection of life, as our Lord called it. Then the resurrection of judgment is the great white throne where all the unsaved of all the ages will be raised and they wanted to be judged by their works. They will be. God is just and righteous, and they will have an opportunity there to stand before a holy God and plead their case. But God's already warned them there's no one saved in that judgment. This is the laws that are brought there, and they are judged according to their works. But he's made it very clear no man can be saved according to his works. Our natural state is a state of lostness. Now, this makes this a tremendous verse. The Lord Jesus says in verse 30, I can of mine own self do nothing. That is, this is a self-limitation that when he came down to this earth, took upon himself our humanity, he came down as a man not to do his will but the Father's will. He says, I can do nothing of myself as I hear. I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which has sent me. You see, he didn't come to do his will. He came to do his Father's will. In his humanity, that was a self-limitation that he took when he became a man. That is the example, of course, for us today. You and I have a will, an old nature that's not obedient to God. It can't even be obedient unto God. We're actually in rebellion against God. That is the natural state of man. That's the reason our Lord said to Nicodemus, "Ye must be born again. Those that are in the flesh cannot please God. Therefore, 
Thy Lord said, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the Spirit, that is spirit. So that today we have to have the new birth, because this old nature, my friend, is incorrigible. It's a communist. It's in rebellion against God. It's been carrying a protest banner before the gates of heaven ever since the man came out through the gates of paradise in the Garden of Eden. Now, the Lord Jesus says in verse 31, "...if I alone bear witness of myself, my witness is not true." The Scripture said that in the mouth of two witnesses a thing is established, you see. And so he makes this statement here, if I bear witness of myself, well, that would not stand up in court. But there's another that beareth witness of me, and I know the witness which he witnesseth of me is true. Now, the witness he's talking about is not John the Baptist. They would immediately think that's who he's referring to. But he's making it clear that he's not referring to a human witness at all. If I alone bear witness of myself, my witness will not stand up, you see. They wouldn't accept it. But there's another that beareth witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesseth of me is true. Now he says, ye sent unto John, and he bare witness unto the truth. John did bear witness of Christ, but our Lord is not referring to him here. It's not a human witness. That would make two witnesses for them, but he's referring to another. He says, but I receive not testimony from man, but these things I say that ye might be saved. He has a higher witness than the witness of man. But he gives a testimony to John the Baptist. He says he was a burning and a shining, not light, but lamp. He was a light bearer, you see. And ye were willing for a season to rejoice in his light. But I have greater witness than that of John. For the works which the Father hath given me to finish the same works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. Now, you see, the credentials that the Lord Jesus had were the miracles that he performed. This idea today that there are those that have the same power that Jesus had, to my judgment, it's blasphemy. You see, these miracles he performed attested that he was who he claimed to be. And friends, they weren't just a few around. He didn't put on healing services, didn't have people get in a line and come by. He moved out in the crowds, the highways and the byways. He took no offerings at all. But as he moved along, why, people were healed. And I've called attention to this in the Gospels again and again, and it's so important I must refresh your mind of it again today, and it's just simply this. Friends, there were not just a half a dozen or a hundred or two that he'd healed that were in that land. There were literally thousands of people that he had healed. It was demonstrated. Nobody in that day contradicted the fact he healed. They'd have been a fool if they had. You have to wait till you get 2,000 years this side of it, and in a musty library in New York City, thousands of miles removed, then you can sit down as a scholar and write a book, say you don't believe in miracles, but you don't prove a thing, friends, when you do that.
Now, will you notice, the Lord Jesus says, "...the Father himself which hath sent me hath borne witness of me. Ye have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his shape." These were miracles. They get right down to the nitty-gritty. Thousands of people. Ye have not his word abiding in you. For whom he hath sent him ye believe not. Now, this verse is always misunderstood. Search the Scriptures. Actually, friends, it's not an imperative. It's in the indicative. Let me put it like this. Ye search the Scriptures. He's making a statement. He's not urging them to do so. He says, ye search the Scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. And friends, you better be careful that you find Jesus in the Bible. If you don't, why, your search is in vain. He says, and yet ye'll not come to me that ye might have life. You see, the Scriptures speak of him. But he says, I know you that ye have not the love of God in you. I am come in my Father's name, and ye receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him ye will receive. And there is coming an Antichrist someday, and the world will receive him. They rejected Christ. The Antichrist will come in his own name, have an image made to himself. Now he says, how can ye believe which receive honor one of another, and seek not the honor that cometh from God only? They look for the applause of man. And that's the curse today in our churches, our good churches, is this business of back-scratching people and teachers with itching ears. Each one want to compliment the other and not tell the truth of the Word of God. They seek not the honor that cometh from God only. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuseth you, even Moses, in whom ye trust. For had ye believed Moses, ye would have believed me. For he wrote of me. And friends, that's so important. Back in the books of the Pentateuch, we've already considered. I've attempted to point the Lord Jesus out. I don't find him on every page, but I think he's on every page of the Pentateuch. I think he's on every page of the Bible. Moses wrote of me. But if ye believe not his writings, how shall ye believe my words? And when a man begins to make an attack upon the Old Testament, watch out. He really is making a subtle attack upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm afraid there are many men very foolishly begin to question the Old Testament, not realizing what they're doing. It's like the man at the insane asylum. He was digging at the foundation. And a man came by and said to him, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm digging out the foundation. Why? He said, you live in that building. He says, I know, but I live upstairs. And I'm afraid that a great many people say, I live in the New Testament. But my friends, the Old Testament is the foundation. Our Lord says, if you believe not his writings, how shall you believe my words? They both go together.